Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This year is the centennial of the Easter Rising, when Irish nationalists rose up against the British government in 1916. Almost 500 were killed and 2,600 injured. The uprising led to Irish independence and later civil war. Today, where we live, we explore Irish history within the context of the play The Plough and the Stars. The New Haven Gaelic players are performing the Irish drama next week. We'll hear from the director and a cast member whose family has roots in the struggle for Irish independence. Irish disgust with British rule grew during the Great Famine in the mid-1800s, 70 years prior to the Easter Rising. The famine led many Irish immigrants to America. Extensive historical records about this time in history are at Quinnipiac University, where you'll find Ireland's Great Hunger Museum. Coming up, we'll talk with the director of the Irish Hunger Institute at the university about the pivotal moments in Ireland that shaped the country as well as Irish-American history. And later, we did not forget it's Halloween. Travel writer and blogger J.W. Auger will join us to tell us about several frightening places in Connecticut to check out after dark tonight. First, are you Irish-American? Did your relatives come to the U.S. after the Great Famine? Or later, when Ireland became independent? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at wmpr.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, joining the show now via ISDN from Yale University is Eileen O'Keefe-Roxby. She's a performer in The Plow and the Stars and president of the Irish-American Community Center. Eileen, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for having us on. And also from Yale University is Brian Byrne. He's director of The Plow and the Stars. Thanks for joining, Brian. No problem. Thank you a million for having us. Let me start with you, Brian. So 10 years after the Easter Rising, playwright Sean O'Casey wrote The Plow and the Stars. Tell us about this play and what has it come to symbolize for the Irish community? It's really, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it's really a, uh, a piece not so much about the battle itself, but it's really about the people of the time and uh, the everyday man and woman on the street and how it affected their lives. And, and uh, the, you know, the people at the time really weren't into it, uh, didn't want to be involved in it until after the rising had happened. But it's, it's really set about the a story about the people of the time and the day and their everyday lives. Now, my producer told me that you actually were born in the U.S., but then moved back to Ireland? That is correct, yes. Tell me a little I of your was, family history. Well, I was born here in New Haven, and uh, as a young child, then went back to Ireland and came back then about uh, 29 years ago, I came back here. And what is it like to, to be in uh, the U.S. after all these years? Um, do you feel like the Irish-American community is strong here? Oh, Absolutely. <clears throat> it's actually, uh, it, you know, you normally would think of New York or Boston as big, strong Irish uh, Irish strongholds, but New Haven is right there with them. Uh, the greater New Haven area is very, uh, has quite a, a variety of of uh, community that from all parts of Ireland, and uh, the community is very strong. The, the uh, people are very much into their heritage and the culture and... Uh, 
it's quite a uh, a place to be. I'll turn to uh, Eileen O'Keefe-Roxby, also in studio with you. Um, your character is Bessie. Tell me about her and, uh, you know, your role in this play. Well, Bessie Burgess is kind of the com- the comic relief of the of the play. <laughs> she is a little bit bawdy and a little bit in your face. Um, she happens to be, to side uh, with the the British and is a loyalist, um, which is kind of anti who my family is. But it's very interesting. <laughs> um, but she um, really comes across as um, being very negative and being. Um, kind of the person that's uh, just not going along for the ride with anyone. Um, but in the end, you see that her very humanistic side comes out and and then all along that she did little things along the way to help people. Um, so this is her character is really about being human and the humanistic side of war and um, how no matter what your beliefs are, people stick together. Absolutely. Tell me, yeah. tell me about your family roots, Eileen. They, uh, sure. My um, my mom and dad are both from Ireland. My dad is from Cork, uh, the West County, which is called the Rebel County. And my mom is from the north uh, and the west side of the country, from Donegal. Um, my grandfather, Francis O'Keefe, was part of the West Cork Brigade um, in the Civil War that happened after the uprising. Um, so uh, he, our, my roots are very strongly um, rooted in Irish independence. So, um, and so your character was someone who sympathized with the British. Yes, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you mentioned that your grandfather, um, obviously, they were part of, uh, is it the IRA? Yes, yes. And what stories did you hear growing up about, uh, you know, that side of your family and, and why they fought so hard for independence? Well, it's very interesting. Um, my uh, my aunt, my, my father had was one of 11. He was the youngest boy, and my aunt was the oldest. And um, during that time, if uh, she would bring messages on her bicycle uh, from, say, my, my grandfather's and grandmother's house down to the village or from one neighbor to another to kind of pass messages, and that's kind of what they did back in those days uh, to, to, get, um, to get the messages around without interruption. Uh, my grandfather and grandmother's house was a safe house, and um, there's a story told that um, the, the soldiers came along. They were going to burn down their house, and uh, my grandmother had just given birth, so they decided not to do that but instead kind of given, gave my grandfather a beating. Um, and so one of the big things that we always heard stories of is um, that um, – that fight for independence, the, to be free, and through my childhood, the stories came out by our parents teaching us rebel songs, and so that we would kind of um, mortalize all the people that fought by singing the songs that um, that were written about them um, in the uprising. Are there and any? As, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> now, as an adult, I I didn't realize um, how how widespread that was in our family until I started reconnecting with my cousins in England and Ireland and Australia and New Zealand, and we all knew the same songs, <laughs> and we all heard the same stories. So it was really, um, it, it really showed me that how important it was to our family, and everyone knew of these things. And so those songs helped you learn uh, the history of, of your native uh, country. Yes. Yes, I learned yeah. actually through those songs, and then the stories came out after I 
-hmm. you know, I started to do some research on my own and say, what does this mean, you know? And uh, so it was interesting to learn more about it as an adult, where as a child I just knew the songs, you know. Yeah. Could you sing a little of, of some of these songs you learned growing up? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> In the morning I'll sound like a crow. But um, one of the songs that I sing often um, is about Roger Casement. And he was uh, involved in bringing, trying to bring German rifles to the rebellion. And he was a, a statesman and, and had gone to the United States, and he tried to raise money, came back, and um, was working with the, the German chancellor to, uh, to do this. And uh, so they did um, supply 20,000 rifles. However, they never made it down there. So the song that I usually sing is called The Banner Strand, and um, Strand is a, is a name for is beach in Ireland, you know. So I'll, I'll do it my best in the morning. <laughs> Was on Good Friday morning, all in the month of May, a German ship was signaling afloat in the bay with twenty thousand rifles. Already far to land, but no answering signal did come from the lonely Banner Strand. A motor car came crashing through the early morning gloom. A sudden crash, and in the street they went. To meet their doom, two Irish lads lay dying there, just like their own homeland. They could not give the signal now from the lonely Banner Strand. No signal answer from the shore. Sir Roger sadly said, No comrades here to welcome me. Alas, they must be dead. But I must do my duty. And at once I mean to land. I'll bring those German rifles too. The lonely banner strand where they took Sir Roger prisoner and they sailed for London town. And in the town they labeled him as a traitor to the crown. Said he, I am no traitor. But for trial he had to stand for bringing German rifles to the lonely Banner Strand. It was in that English prison that they leered him to his death. I'm dying for my country. He said with his last breath, 
He's buried in the prison yard, far from his own homeland, and the wind will sing his requiem to the lonely Banastrand, where they took Sir Roger home again in the year of sixty-five. And with his comrades of sixteen, in peace and tranquil lie, his last fond wish it was fulfilled, for to lie in his native home, and the wild wind sings his requiem on the lonely Banastrand. Amazing, Eileen. <laughs> well, that's lovely. Tells- <laughs> lovely. A lovely morning voice from Eileen O'Keefe Roxby. She's a performer in the play The Plow and the Stars and president of the Irish American Community Center. Uh, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalthathanchel. We're talking about this play that's going to premiere next week uh, from the New Haven Gaelic Players in the context of, of this year, the centennial of the Easter Rising in 1916. In studio with Eileen uh, is Brian Byrne. Tell us about the New Haven Gaelic players and, you know, the significance of staging this play this year. Well, the Gaelic players, um, this is our 48th year. We were founded by Charlie Stars and his wife, Margaret, back in 1968. They had emigrated from Oma and County Tyrone and uh, had been involved in theatre back in Ireland together. In fact, I think that's where they, they met, right, and yes, fell in love. Yes, And... Uh, they had a vision, Charlie had a vision for theatre here in the New Haven area and they put together the group and as I say, this is our 48th year. We've been going strong. We have uh, quite a following. We have we normally put on one production every November for five nights and uh, we bring a pretty decent crowd each night. And uh, This year now with uh, we've been getting a little more publicity with uh, the show here, and uh, we're getting calls from all over the state, which is great. Uh, again, this is a, a play by uh, playwright Sean O'Casey. Um, I, th- I understand that when this was first staged, um, that um, the audience threw a lumps of coal back in 1926. How oh, has the right. opinion of this play and what it means in Irish history to have changed through the years? Well, over the years, I think this play has gone down as uh, one of the Irish classics. It's really been romanticized um, with the growing movement of uh, Irish patriotism over the years. And, and uh, in fact, the during the rising, as I was saying earlier, the, the regular people on the street really weren't into it and didn't want any part of it. And it wasn't until afterwards, when the leaders were all executed, that it really got a fire under the people in the country and uh, from there it kind of led to, it was the birthing of Irish freedom as we know it and over the years uh, the play has really, has become an all-time classic I think And Brian, do you feel like this play has relevance today? Oh, I I would definitely think it uh, it plays, you could take anything going on in the news today, I know I heard Charlie, our director, once compared to uh, what's going on in Syria and places. You know, it's, it's really, you know, the story about how people deal with with war and, and battles and and uh, strife and 
I think, you know, we have a, a lot of that going on in the world over the years, in recent years too. So I, I definitely think it it plays to uh, all audiences and, uh, you know, and it, it can have quite an effect on, on people that have been through it, I think. Mm. We heard earlier uh, Eileen, who plays Bessie in The Plow and the Stars, uh, she sang a rebel song that she learned uh, growing up. I understand, Eileen, that in this play you have um, some of your family uh, also in the play. And how did you uh, pass along these songs and stories uh, to, your, to your children? Oh, yes. The, um, my daughter, Cara uh, Roxby Faff, is, is plays a, a part in the play as well. And my granddaughter, Caroline Faff, um, is, plays a Malzer, is her name in the play. Um, and they've kind of seen me through the years be this, but I learned from my parents. My uh, father was in the very first production uh, with the Gaelic Players, and my mom was also on the stage and behind the stage did makeup for for many years. So um, my aunts, uh, my uncles, my cousins and I, we were all kind of, uh, this is our outlet. Uh, this is our way of preserving our, our culture and our heritage. Um, besides the songs and, and Irish dancing, um, we, we um, really have taken to um, the, uh, the, the Gaelic players and, and doing Irish theater. It's kind of our way to, to do that. So I've kind of taught my children these songs uh, just as my um, father has taught me but my grand my father also teaches them songs too in Gaelic and um, it's nice to see that connection from my father to my grandchildren um, sharing all of his heritage um, with them and it's very special to me. I mentioned earlier that you're also president of the Irish American Community Center in East Haven. Tell us about the Irish American uh, population in, in Connecticut. Well, our, our club has been around uh, since the 40s, so we, we've, we were kind of uh, home away from home for uh, immigrants coming in to the country, and um, I think that's been the success of our club over the years, that is, it's really been a family place. Uh, people who have come in, they hear about our club, they come up, and uh, it feels like home to them. So um, that's, I think, the biggest, the biggest thing that's uh, important for our club is we're here to preserve Irish culture. We're here to support Irish culture. But we also um, were a great um, networking place for the recent immigrant. Um, we're very active. Uh, we hold our festivals every year. We we host um, traditional Irish music. We have dancing there. We have our plays there um, with the Gaelic players every year. We um, have Irish sport. Um, we have a youth football team. Um, so if there's anything, we, we teach Gaelic uh, Irish uh, lessons, um, we do singing, so there's whatever it is that you want to know about Irish culture and Irish heritage, we have it at our club. And uh, before uh, we end the segment, you know, Eileen, I was curious, and, and Brian can chime in too, you know, what about this play, The Plow and the Stars, would appeal to someone that did not have uh, Irish roots, to get more people from the community um, at your center to see this play and, and what it means for um, that, that moment in time in Ireland's history? Well, I think as, as anyone who knows anything about Irish playwrights, there's definitely humor in um, what they do. Um, so they're, and they they write these terrific characters. So Irish plays are filled with these uh, very kitschy kind of characters that are funny and interesting. And 
um, tell a story through not only their words but their actions. And so I think this play appeals to people that are interested just in theater and seeing good character actors because that's what these plays are written for, but also, um, you know, to to get to, to get a sense of story. This was a, a really good story. Uh, O'Casey is a good storyteller and – um, so I think that this play could play to really any any audience. Doesn't you don't have to be Irish uh, to to like the Plow and the Stars. No, like most Irish plays, they have a, a little bit of tragedy, drama, comedy, and a little bit of romance in them. Yeah, and uh, you know the Irish have always had a great uh, sense for for finding the humor in all situations. So uh, this this does bring out uh, quite a bit of comedy in it, too. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to thank uh, Brian Byrne, director of The Plow and the Stars. It premieres next Wednesday, November 9th in East Haven. More information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Brian, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for having us. And Eileen O'Keefe-Roxby will stay with us as we continue to talk about the centennial of the Easter Rising. Coming up, we'll hear how the Great Famine, 70 years earlier, contributed to the growth of Irish-American communities nationwide. This is where we live. At Easter time, 1916, when flowers bloomed and leaves were green, there dawned a day when freedom's cry called out brave men to fight and die. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We just heard about the play The Plough and the Stars, which tells the story of the Easter Rising from the perspective of the working class in Ireland in 1916. Now, more than 70 years earlier, resentment of British rule in Ireland grew during the Great Famine. To tell us more, I'm joined in studio by Christine Keneally, professor of history and director of Ireland's Great Hunger Institute at Quinnipiac University. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. And also uh, via Yale University studios, Eileen O'Keefe-Roxby is with us. She's president of the Irish American Community Center. But I wanted to turn uh, to you, Christine. You know, we were talking a lot about uh, the Easter Rising. Um, If you could just give us some more context about the events that led to that uprising in 1916, much of it, uh, the resentment growing during the famine decades earlier. Yeah, the famine is certainly a defining moment, but you can also see 1916 in terms of a much longer struggle because by the 20th century, Ireland had been a British colony for almost 700 years and there had been various attempts to break free from Britain and all of them had been unsuccessful. So there were risings in 1641, 1798, 1848, 1867 and then 1916 can be seen as part of that continuum of struggle. But what really helped define and shape 1916 was, as you say, the Great Famine, because this was a watershed in Irish history. Um, As a colony, Ireland, the Irish Catholic native people had for centuries been dispossessed of their land, marginalised, denied basic civil rights. And so by the 19th century, many of them were very poor. There was incredibly high dependence on one crop, the potato, And when the potato failed in 1845, the people were left without resources. 
And they were governed at that time from London by the British government. And the British government could and should have intervened to help them, but for various reasons, they didn't. And unfortunately, the potato failed in 1845, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, and 51. And this led to a period seven years of famine. And during those seven years, over one million people died and one and a half million people emigrated. So Ireland lost 25% of her population. And this makes the Great Famine the most lethal famine in modern history in terms of population loss. And so added to the grievances of centuries of colonisation was this awful act of misgovernment. And many people who left Ireland at that time went to America and they took with them a sense of displacement and a sense of anger at the British government. And all these feelings fed into 1916. You mentioned that uh, the British government uh, could have intervened, but they didn't. Was it indifference or did they? I'm just curious if you could just talk about the context of what was going on there. Yeah. And again, it's complex. I don't want to oversimplify it. Uh, But at the time, the famine occurred at a particular time of ideological debate when it was believed very firmly that poor people were poor because they were lazy. So there was an idea that too much intervention would be a bad thing. It would create a culture of dependency and some of these concepts we're familiar with today. But also, again, because Ireland was a colony and Ireland was a Catholic colony, whereas Britain was very overtly Protestant at this stage. And so Irish people were really looked down on for many reasons, for their religion, the fact they ate potatoes, they had their own language, their culture was repeatedly undermined and despised. So there are various reasons why the British government didn't intervene. And again, I talk about the British government, but the British government was at the centre of the wealthiest, most successful empire ever at that stage. So they really had the resources to help Ireland. And during this time, even though there were many Irish that were starving, there were still goods coming from Ireland uh, to England. Yeah, one of the, again, one of the tragedies, and for many people, one of the shocking aspects of the famine is that while people starved, massive amounts of food were being exported from Ireland. And from the poorest parts of Ireland, not just from the East Coast, but from places such as Westport, Sligo, Skibbereen, one of the areas we associate with the devastation of the famine years. And In fact, some of the export figures increased during the famine years. The amount of cattle leaving Ireland increased in 1846 and 1847. And those cattle were often going to Liverpool on the same boats as the poor people fleeing from famine. There was one distinction, though. There were more regulations governing the transport of cattle than the transport of people. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is Christine Keneally, professor of history and director of Ireland's Great Hunger Institute at Quinnipiac University. We're speaking with her in the context of this being the centennial of the Easter Rising of 1916 in Ireland and the, the consequences, the events that led up to that rebellion in 1916. Oh, it's often said that this famine was uh, the birth, of, in many ways, of Irish America. Talk about the, um, you mentioned earlier, uh, 25% of population loss um, after the famine. But talk about the, the new immigrants uh, to the U.S. and how you've seen these communities grow um, throughout the years. There has always been high emigration from Ireland to America. So even before the famine, there was relatively high emigration. And that meant that the famine emigrants had natural communities to gravitate to. 
And some of the things Eileen was talking about before, people who arrive in America having that network and that safety net for them. But the famine was different because before 1845, most emigration was a rational process. People left Ireland because they wanted to do better. In the years 1845 to 52, people left in desperation as a real a voyage of survival. Um, tragically, we know that when people arrived in America, they faced prejudice here um, because of malnourishment before they arrived. We know their lifespan was very short. Uh, possibly only they lived for six years on average after arriving in America. But again, what makes the Great Famine unique is that even after Good Harvest's return to Ireland in 1852, emigration persisted. And most of those emigrants went to North America. Um, some of them were Irish speakers, many of them were illiterate, poor. And those who spoke Irish, there is no word for emigration in the Irish language. The nearest equivalent is exile. And people who came to North America felt they were exiled. And again, when they looked and when they thought about it, why had that happened? And they very much blamed the British government. And so the wave of nationalism that came about after the famine really had its roots in North America, and that persisted up to 1916. Did you see any of these uh, immigrants wanting to return to Ireland after the rebellion when they saw that, uh, maybe 1921, when Irish Ireland was able to be um, independent, so to speak? I think Irish people always have a notion they will return to Ireland. Um, but we know that Irish people, in fact, have the lowest rate of return of any emigrant group, um, as low as only 2% in the 19th century ever returned to Ireland. So when people left Ireland, they knew it was forever. And again, when we look at the history of Ireland and the demography of the population, that tells its story. Before the famine, the population of Ireland was eight and a half million people. It was one of the fastest growing populations in Europe. By 1862, it had fallen to six and a half million. By 1901, it had fallen to four and a half million people. More Irish-born people at that stage were living in North America than on the island of Ireland. And that process didn't really reverse until the period we called the Celtic Tiger, when Ireland, for once, was wealthy at the end of the 20th century. Um, it was very short-lived, as we know. Uh, but even today, the population of the whole of Ireland is under 7 million people. So the Irish population has never recovered from the trauma of the Great Famine. Now, you're director of Ireland's Great Hunger Institute at Quinnipiac, where you also find Ireland's Great Hunger Museum. Why Quinnipiac? Why Quinnipiac? Um, largely the vision of one man, and that man is our president, President John Leahy. And his family have roots in Ireland in County Clare. And he read about the famine in the 1990s, and he wanted to mark it in a meaningful way. In 1997, he was Grand Marshal of the St. Patrick's Parade in New York. And he had a minute's silence to honour the memory of what was called Black 47, um, 150 years earlier. And two graduates of Quinnipiac were there, and they knew nothing about Irish history, nothing about the famine, but they felt they were Jews, and they felt that the story of the Great Famine had resonance with their own history, and they wanted some way in which the famine could be permanently remembered and they felt education was the best way. So together with President Leahy, they decided that they would focus on educating people about the great hunger, the great famine. 
And so from that point, President Leahy started to build up a collection of books, of primary sources, of artwork, and eventually that evolved into a museum and into an institute. Would you say that this uh, institute and museum, I mean, the wealth of information and material you have, uh, does it rival something you'd find in Ireland? It does, because in terms of the museum in particular, there is nothing comparable in Ireland in terms of a collection of art specifically devoted to telling the story of the great hunger. So in that sense, it is unique. Um, The Institute also, we have collections that are unique to us. Um, We have a collection of letters by Lady Sligo. A few years ago, we put on an exhibition based on that. So together, the Institute and the museum and our library, we have a wonderful collection in the library It's like a a trinity of riches and resources that people are coming from all over America and from Ireland to see. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Also with us is uh, Eileen O'Keefe-Roxby. She's president of the Irish American Community Center. And Eileen, I wanted you to, um, I wanted to ask you um, if you'd known about uh, the Irish Hunger Institute and the Ireland's Great Hunger Museum at Quinnipiac. Um, you know, are you, are you surprised that something like this exists here in Connecticut when we think of, of, of the uh, um, bigger Irish uh, American communities in like New York or, say, Boston? I'm not surprised at all, actually, because um, because I know of the history of the New Haven area, since that's the area where I grew up in, and the passion uh, for what's happening. And I actually was at the um, the opening of the museum. I went to um, when we the Lender family just bought the first piece. Um, and uh, went to the opening of that and the dedication of that. So I've been aware of it. I've been there uh, many times, um, and it's a wonderful um, resource that we have. And I'm really proud that Quinnipiac has taken that lead and um, and preserved that for, for the rest of America and the world. Um, as an Irish-American, um, how has your family reflected on the Great Famine and, and the consequences um, on, on um, your relatives? Well, in my um, in my father's hometown of Kishgame, County Cork, there's a memorial in the um, cemetery um, that shows the population of Kishgame before the famine and after, and it went from something like uh, 600 people down to 43 people. Mm-hmm. And so, um, our family was obviously affected by that. Um, coming from uh, you know a poor county in the west of Ireland at that time. They didn't have a lot of resources, and they, they definitely had to live off the land. And uh, so the impact on my family, uh, though I don't know directly how many uh, of my relatives were lost at that time because their records were all uh, destroyed in a fire, but, um, but I know that that is memorialized in my dad's hometown. I want to turn back to Christine Keneally, professor of history and director of Ireland's Great Hunger Institute at, at Quinnipiac University. I would think that there is value when um, you look at these uh, letters. You can talk more about the Lady Sligo collection. And, uh, you know, through uh, many generations, we hear the stories. But every time the story is told, you know, maybe a detail or a fact gets left behind. And so almost the stories can get diluted after a certain period. But this is a this, this collection can really help get people uh, back to what was happening uh, during, you know, the mid-1800s and the impact on the people? Yeah, I think it's very important to recover these stories. And in our first two exhibitions in particular, Lady Sligo and the Grey Nuns of Montreal, we tried to recover the memory of what women were doing because so often the story of women has been lost in history or marginalised. And again, that happened in 1916 
And one of the great um, outcomes of this year of commemoration is that the story of so many women has been recovered and retold again. But in terms of our collection, um, our first exhibition was about Lady Sligo, this beautiful woman who lived in Westport House in County Mayo, one of the poorest areas in the west of Ireland. And we generally think of Irish landlords as being heartless and as being men. But she sort of reverses that trend because obviously she was a woman and she was very compassionate to the poor. And so we're lucky to have over 200 letters that she had written. And her family are still in Westport in County Mayo and they knew nothing about her except, as they said, she was a wife. But they knew nothing about her story, her compassion. So when our exhibition closed at Quinnipiac, we actually gave it to her descendants. So it's now a permanent exhibition in County Mayo, which is great. As we say, the lady's gone back home again. Um, Our exhibition after that was about an incredible collection of women, again, um, nuns in Montreal. And in 1847, because of taxes imposed in New York, in Boston, etc., many of the people fleeing from famine in Ireland chose to go to Canada rather than directly to America. And you may have heard of Gros Isle. There was a quarantine station. If people survived Gros Isle, they then went on to Montreal. And in 1847 alone, 70,000 poor Irish people landed in the port of Montreal, a city of 50,000 people. And when we think of how we react to the Syrian crisis today, I think this is a real shining example of compassion and kindness because the nuns asked permission to open sheds, fever sheds on the dockside and to look after the poor immigrants and to help them so that they could go on their way. And as a result, a number of nuns caught fever themselves and died. But this is a story of an incredible compassion that had really been lost. And we were very happy that we were able to help to recover it. That exhibition closed a few months ago, and it's now actually in Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin. So the stories are being retold and reimagined in some ways. And for our listeners who would like to you know, check out the museum and learn more about the Institute, where can they go? Um, the museum has its own website, so if you look up the Great Hunger Museum, they have been closed, but they're just about to reopen. And the Institute, we are based on the Mount Carmel campus. We currently have an exhibition of political cartoons from the 1880s. Um, so, And we're working towards our very big exhibition next year is going to be on Frederick Douglass, who visited Ireland in 1845 and 1846, and again, who is somebody who inspires across generations. Well, I want to thank Christine Keneally. She's Professor of History and Director of Ireland's Great Hunger Institute at Quinnipiac University. Thank you so much, Christine, for giving us this glimpse back into history. Thank you. And also Eileen O'Keefe-Roxby. She's a performer in The Plow and the Stars, a play that's premiering uh, next week at the New New Haven Gaelic Players. We'll have more information again on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Thank you so much, Eileen. Thank you, Lucy. Now, coming up, it's Halloween. Blogger and writer J.W. Ocker will tell us about several frightening places in Connecticut to check out after dark tonight. Are there places you know that are haunted? You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel.
It's Halloween, so we wanted to hear just how scary Connecticut is. We're not talking about what's going on at the Capitol. Joining me now by phone is J.W. Auker. He's a travel writer and creator of the website oddthingsiveseen.com, author of a new book, A Season with the Witch, The Magic and Mayhem of Halloween in Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me on. So you're a travel writer. I've, I understand you've traveled to some of the spookiest places in Connecticut and uh, throughout New England. How did you get involved in that? Uh, well, I moved to New England and became fascinated with it. I'm from um, the Mid-Atlantic, from Maryland, um, but I moved up here in about 2008 and basically just treated the whole of New England like my, my new neighborhood just because there's so much history and interest here that it, it was fascinating with the place. So are you a Southerner that moved up to, to, uh, to Yankee land? Basically, basically. <laughs> there's a lot of history up here. So tell us um, about Connecticut. Where, uh, where should people go to get a little freaked out? <laughs> I think one of my favorite places in Connecticut is actually a, a brain museum you guys have um, right in uh, at Yale, you know, of all places. A brain um, museum, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was started by um, a famous neurosurgeon named Dr. Harvey Cushing, and the, the, they opened it um, about six years ago. It's in the uh, Yale School of Medicine, open to everybody. You can just go in there, tell the librarian you want to see the brain collection. And they'll send you downstairs and into this nice little wood-paneled room with jars of brains, hundreds of them, just sitting around on the walls. Um, that's both kind of creepy and interesting, but also extremely educational and fascinating, uh, because these brains were the, you know, brains of his patients, who were, you know, his, the families of which are very um, appreciative of Dr. Cushing's efforts to, you know, alleviate pain and extend the lives of the family members. Uh, his work is extremely foundational to the uh, uh, science of neurosurgery. All right, so on the first, uh, first place to we, we should go is Cushing Brain Collection in New Haven. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, where else in the state would you recommend that people check out tonight? Uh, well, there's an interesting graveyard in Jewett City. Uh, well, the graveyard itself isn't really interesting. It's just your basic graveyard. Um, it's called Jewett City Cemetery. But in that cemetery is a row of tombstones, um, all with the last name Ray on them. And this is one of um, New England's famous vampire cases. Uh, if, you want to, if you want to call Ooh, it that. I don't know anything um, about this. Yes. So it's happened all over New England, but this is Connecticut's most famous one, where, you know, families would experience tuberculosis, which, you know, back, back in the, you know, 17th, uh, 18th centuries wasn't diagnosed. Nobody really knew what it was as a disease. They just knew that their family members were kind of wasting away and getting pale. Uh, they would die and get buried. And then it's a contagious disease, so the next one in the family would start also kind of showing those same symptoms. So to them, it kind of fit this kind of template of, uh, you know, vampirism, the, the myth of vampirism. So what they would do is they would literally go out to their family graveyards and dig up, um, dig up their family members and then perform a ritual over them. Usually it involved fire. Sometimes it involved incinerating, you know, the heart or body parts. And then every once in a while it involved actually drinking a tonic of ash and whatever else to kind of cure this, uh, this disease. And they just didn't know what it was yet. And the Ray family did exactly that. Uh, right there at that spot in that graveyard. So you can be on the spot of that history uh, where it happened. And kind of the interesting thing about the Ray situation is it was a big deal at the time. So the local newspapers talked about it. Uh, this was uh, probably 1840s, 1850s. Um, so it was a big deal at the time. And even today you can see like the historical records showing, you know, everything they went through to kind of like protect their family from, you know, what they thought at the time was vampirism. 
Wow. So Jewett City is all the way on the eastern side of the state, so uh, definitely a, a place to check out. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalthathanchel. We're speaking with J.W. Auker. He's a travel writer and creator of the website oddthingsivesseen.com. Uh, now, I understand there are some spooky places in Connecticut that have been featured in horror flicks, including a haunting in Connecticut. What can you tell us about that home? Oh, yes, the Snedecker home. So um, this happened in 1986. It was a house... It, um, I'm uh, sorry, the town escapes me at the moment. But, um, yes. Southington, yep. There it is, Southington, yes, good. Uh, so this was actually a mortuary at one time, this house. Um, had all the equipment for, you know, getting bodies ready for funerals and for, um, you know, burial and that kind of thing. And they moved, the Snedekers moved into the house in 1986. It was actually a duplex. Still is to this day, actually. It's a private house, um, you know, two divided into two, two parts. Uh, they moved in. Uh, they found this mortuary equipment, and then, you know, the classic, you know, haunted house story uh, of, you know, started happening. You know, demons and weird voices, and the sun started acting weird. Um, they had the the, the uh, Warrens come in, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were Connecticut's famous, you know, ghost hunters from decades back. Every single, like, you know, famous haunted house from the past, you know, four decades involves them somehow. Um, so they came in, uh, the usual, like, fighting, all the horror movie kind of cliches at this point that were happening, um, things flying around, presences. Um, so they kind of uh, tried to battle that, but eventually the Snedeker just moved out. Uh, and that's when kind of everything settled down. You know, nobody since that time has ever reported anything weird and supernatural. But that event has kind of fallen into lore here in pop culture to the point that in 2009 we had that movie, A Haunting in Connecticut, based on the event that supposedly took place in this Connecticut house. Did you see the movie? Did you think that it was, you know, it was uh, pretty realistic compared to the story of the Snedekers? Yeah, if you if you buy the story of the Snedekers, and for <laughs> the movie was probably pretty close to um, giving a good um, idea of how eerie and creepy and just dangerous it seemed to live there at the time. So we're in Southington. Let's go over to Windsor. There's the Archer Gilligan Murder House. Gee, I wonder what uh, happened there. Yes, yes. This is another private home. It's a brick home right there in, uh, in Windsor. Um, Back in uh, 1906, uh, a woman owned it, and she turned it into a nursing home uh, for the elderly. And over the course of the time of, you know, for about 10 years of running that home, uh, a high number of patients died, like 60 patients at least died, enough that the, the um, local authorities started getting suspicious, started looking into her. Turns out she'd also outlived two of her husbands, who both left her, like, nice amounts of money to kind of what she used to start this nursing home. So they started exhuming bodies, including her second husband, and found out that many you know, as many as 60 patients and her second husband had been poisoned with arsenic. Um, and she was eventually convicted of at least, I think, for only one death, honestly. She was convicted, that's all they needed. They convicted her of one death, sent her, sent her to jail. Um, but she was a prolific serial killer. At the end of the day, she just used arsenic on the elderly and the infirm, um, which is a terrible story. But the twist in it is, you know, that decades later, we get the play Arsenic and Old Lace, um, which also became famous as a Frank Copper movie uh, later on starring Cary Grant. And Arsenic and Old Lace is exactly based on this um, serial killer, for lack of a better term. Uh, just, you know, a much more humorous take on it in, in, the sto- in the play and in the movie. Well, our producer, Lydia Brown, just said that's her favorite movie. So good to know. And then uh, before we run out of time, there's the severed arm of St. Edmund. What's, what's the story behind that? Oh, yes. Yeah. So it's, it's a holy relic. Uh, the Society of the Fathers and Brothers of St. Edmund, Edmund, came over um, to uh, New England uh, from, um, from the continent, from um, Europe, and they were based around um, St. Edmund. That was their patron saint. He was a 13th century European saint. 
they ended up in Mystic, Connecticut, where they've opened up a retreat that's open up to this day. People can go there and they can rent a room and just kind of enjoy the grounds, which are very beautiful. Nice architecture, gardens right on the water. Um, you can go get, find peace, find rest, all the things they kind of uh, preach as their tenants. But the public can also just show up anytime they want as well um, to, to wander the grounds and kind of take in that kind of atmosphere. And then if you go into their chapel, uh, it's a little stone chapel right there overlooking the water, and then into one of the back rooms, and there is a severed arm from that 13th century saint. So here we have a, you know, 700-year-old um, mummy hand, basically. You can see the hand. It's dark. It's, it's, it's dried, obviously, and it's sitting in this little glass tube right there with information about it and all those kinds of things. But it's a great sight, even aside from the <laughs> severed arm, which is beautiful, and this is just part of that kind of tradition they have. Now, I have to ask you, JW, uh, before we, we end the segment, are there any places that you visited anywhere in New England where you really felt like there was some paranormal activity? You know, I'm going to say no to that. <laughs> so, I've, so I've stayed the night in graveyards and prisons. Wrong answer. And, and I just, I, I, if there is paranormal activity, I'm a little ticked at it because it's never really kind of, you know, happened to me. But, you know, they, they always say you're only one experience away from having uh, those experiences. So I'm still waiting. And oh, I understand that you spent some time, you moved your whole family to Salem so that you could write your book. What did you find out about uh, all the all the good stuff yeah. after the, the witch trials? Yeah, last year, we lived 31 days in downtown Salem, all of October. They're haunted happenings. And just kind of, I we looked for, we found all the historical sites, all the attractions. I interviewed some 40 people from street performers to the mayor to, you know, tourists and everybody, street um the chief of police, to kind of figure out why this town was so weird, especially around October. Uh, and it's, it's a very complicated story, but the cool thing about the city is it's a great city, even aside from the Halloween and the witch history. Um, tons of restaurants, an art museum, uh, tons of culture. Um, but, of course, all that's only there because of that history of tourism and witch uh, history and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a great little kind of, um, uh, I don't know, it's a... It's a very complex city, put it that way. Well, we'll learn more if we read your new book, A Season with the Witch, The Magic and Mayhem of Halloween in Salem, Massachusetts. I've been speaking to J.W. Ocker, travel writer and creator of the website oddthingsivesseen.com. We'll list all of the places in Connecticut that we should check out. Thank you so much for your time, J.W. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.